tonight I'm continuing a series I started uh, back in early summer called Better Together. And uh, I think this is actually part six, maybe part seven. And we're just talking about what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God and how we should treat other people in a local church. How many would agree that we ought to have the best relationships going in a local church? Yes or no? How many know it's often not that case? Sometimes you can get more challenged by the, your friends in church than anybody else around you, yes or no? Y'all are really quiet, is that true? So you know we need to learn how to treat each other. And Paul said this, 1 Timothy 3, I'm writing these things to you, even though I hope to be with you soon, so that if I'm delayed, you may know how you must conduct yourself in the house of God. This is the church of the living God, which is the pillar and foundation of truth. So he says, so you'll know how you can conduct yourself. So we're just talking about how you, we conduct ourselves in the kingdom of God. Some of the things that we've covered in the past, remember God is body conscious. He sees us as individuals. He also sees the church as a body of believers. And how many know we have an atmosphere as a body of believers? And God wants that atmosphere to be an atmosphere where people can be ministered to, where people can be healed, where the Holy Spirit can manifest. And then I talked about uh, don't let yourself be used like a cancer cell in a human body. I mean, cancer is really cells that turn against the other cells of the body. How many know we're supposed to love one another, not fight and bicker with one another? So we talked about that one time. The way we treat others is the way Jesus treats us. So, you know, the way I talk to you, the way I relate to my spouse, the the way I treat others is the, really the way Jesus treats me because that's the way I treat him. Think, act, and speak unity. We talked about that. Uh, love helping us overlook uh, the flaws and misdeeds of others. We mentioned that. We talked about personal bitter root judgments that we have to deal with one time. And then we talked about what our mouths do. Gossip and slander should not be a part of that and how uh, actually Satan is the author of slander and gossip. It started when he rebelled against God in heaven. We spent a time talking about that. Last week, uh, uh, after I had been away for a period of time on vacation and other things, we came back and we talked about uh, the motivation for the family of God. How many know the most important thing in my life, the most important thing in your, in your life is the love of God? Amen, a couple of nods. I want you to think about it. Love is the most important thing. Listen, I was raised in a, in a Baptist church. You hear me say it all the time. But, you know, I hardly heard a whole lot about the emphasis that the New Testament places on the love of God. And when I came to Jesus just before my 18th birthday, I've been talking about that on Sundays, I, uh, as I began to just read the word and, and it became so apparent to me that love was, was one of the major themes all throughout Paul's epistles, um, uh, the writings of Peter, the writings of John, all through, the, all through the gospels, love became paramount. It became a theme that I began to see over and over and over again. And then as I began to read and study, and then as I even went to several Bible schools, I saw the theme of love was very, very important. And we talked about that last week, and we mentioned many of the scriptures in the New Testament that emphasize that if I'm going to walk with God, the number one thing I need to be looking to do is love other people. How many hear me? So Jesus said it, I'm giving you a new commandment, John 13, love each other just as I've loved you, that you love one another. Uh, your love will prove, uh, your love for one another will prove to others, to the world, that you're my disciples. And he said, love others the way I love you. I mean, he loved Peter when he knew Peter was going to mess up. I mean, he loved, he loved people who treated him meanly and wrongly. He still loved them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, we mentioned this last week, 
Um, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you or use you to their advantage and persecute you uh, so that you'll be like him. He said, if you just love people that love you back, you know better than, than a person that doesn't know me because uh, people in the world do that. But he said, if you want to be like me, love the people that aren't easy to love. And then Matthew 22, the great, great commandments, love the Lord our God with everything inside of us. Then love our neighbor as yourself. Jesus said all of the 10 commandments, all of the law, everything the prophets said in the Old Testament is based on all of that. All that they said and did is based on love. And then we mentioned that as believers, how many know you have a measure of God's love already placed inside? And see, that's what amazes me, that he, God loved me enough when I came to Jesus, received the new birth when the Holy Spirit comes in. Romans 5, 5 says, hope doesn't disappoint because the love of God has been, and I like the way he puts it, poured out. That seems to indicate a generous amount, right? Poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the motivation to love people a different way has been placed in every side of, in every one of us. First Peter 4, 8, I mentioned again last week, um, have intense and unfailing love for one another. And then he said, love covers a multitude of sin. And then Amplified says, it forgives and disregards the offenses of others. So we went into that in fair detail last week and talked about it. And how many know, uh, how many know the test of love is not loving the sweet, nice people that smell good, look good, and treat you nice. It's loving people who don't smell good who don't look good, who are disheveled and who don't treat you the way you think you ought to be treated. They say things about you behind your back and, you know, they do things to you and take advantage of you and they use you as a ladder to get where they want and uh, they spitefully use you. Like Jesus said, the test of love is when I love people that don't love me back. So, you know, I have to ask myself, when's the last time this week that I loved somebody that didn't love me back? Was a kind, was a sweet, I was uh, obnoxious and aggravating. <laughs> Something to think about. Anyway, so anyway, we have the love of God inside of us. And my encouragement is, you know, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, he told us that we have to submit our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And then Romans 12, uh, 2, he said, don't let the world, one translation says, squeeze you into its mold like you would put some modeling clay into your hand and squeeze it. Don't let the world mold you to look like it, but be transformed by what? Changing the way you think so you can prove the will of God. And the biggest challenge that we have is our minds. Our minds get in the way of us loving people the way that God loves us. And I want to go to a little more detail on that tonight. Um, and personal conditioning often keeps us. That's the reason that churches are notorious for splits, schisms, People upset, aggravated, fussing at each other because we often have the same kinds of problems that everybody else in our culture has because we have the same kinds of influences. And the key to really walking with God is learning how to overcome the influences of your past so that the stuff that God placed in you when you're saved can come out and be seen by everybody else, right? So I want to talk about that a little bit tonight. Um, there's an adage, uh, I think, focus on the family. James Dobson's uh, ministry uses this home is where the heart is. And how many know that uh, that's really, really true? And I, go in, I want to go in a little bit of detail on that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, just five verses there, several verses there. 
uh, are known as the Shema in, uh, in Jewish culture. And this is actually the first two scriptures in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is uh, where it says, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Jesus quoted it there in Matthew 22. Well, the Jew, Jews, uh, every morning and every evening, they actually pray that. They say that over their family, over their lives. It's called the Shema. But then he goes on there, he says, um, beginning in verse 5, and you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, all of your strength. And then verse 6, you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home, when you're on the road, when you're going to bed, when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands. Wear them on your foreheads as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So what was he saying? What was God saying to the Israelites back in the Old Testament? Surround yourself with the word. Surround yourself with my word. Live it, breathe it, eat it, sleep it, walk with it, lay down with it, get up with it, tell your children about it, involve it in every detail of your life so your children will absorb uh, what I think and how I want them to be. And how many know that's how we learn? How many know all of us are a product of our home life? Home is where the heart is. Home is where we get most of our habit patterns and our character patterns. They come from what we've been exposed to. Those humans, we, we, uh, we learn by observation, by watching, being around. Observation, association, by being around people. And then influence. Everything around us, you know, I've got all these little grand, four grandbabies now and there are various ages and stages now and you know what's happening? They're, my grandbabies are absorbing their surroundings. We have four children, you've got kids perhaps and, and you've been a child yourself. We all absorb, that's how we learn. We see, we hear, we watch. We often watch and that's how we learn. All my life I've watched others and God called me to ministry, and when I was a young man, scared the bejeebies out of me, I just started watching. I just started watching how people did, how pastors ministered, how teachers ministered, how ministers did what I just learned. How many of you learn that way? Well, at home, I learn what's valuable, what men are like, what women are like, what husbands are like, what, what fathers are like, what mothers are like, what wives are like, what parents are like what children are supposed to be like, what authority is, what good communication is. Or I learn, I learn to fend for myself, to make my own way, to figure it out the best I know how because I've been neglected or hurt or abused. Our home life, how many know all of us, we absorb. See, when I start talking this way, it gets really quiet because all of us absorb our surroundings, Right? So how many know if you come from a healthy home, you're a really blessed person? There's no such thing as a perfect home, but there can be a healthy home. How many believe that? Nobody's raised in a perfect home. Nobody has the perfect family environment because nobody can have the perfect parents because there are no perfect parents. You know, it was a big grow-up day for me when I was young, and I was thinking about these kinds of things. And, you know, I, uh, you know Susan and I was married. I was 20. Uh, and she was, uh, well, she was. And, uh, and I turned 21 the next month. And, uh, 
And, you know, I, I thought, well, you know, uh, and, and most of us generally think certain ways about our childhood, but I thought, you know, I've had a pretty good childhood. I've got a good home life. I've got a good mom, a good dad. We have a good family. We were raised a particular way. That's really good. And so I thought, had a really great family. And then Susan and I got married. We talked about her family. I saw the influences of hers. But I just, you know, generally speaking, thought, well, I just had a really great family. It took me, it really took me a few years to admit to myself that my parents were imperfect. And that some of the things I saw weren't the way they ought to be, even though they weren't awfully terrible. How many hear that? Now, now that was my experience. Your experience might be everything was out of kilter. You may have an experience of neglect, of abuse, of a totalitarian regime. <laughs> and somebody's, somebody's overlording everybody else. You know, we all have different experiences. I'm just saying that we reflect the home that we're raised in. And how many know if that's good, great. If it's not good, we've got some things to overcome. What I found is all of us have some things to overcome. How many would admit that? And then, uh, you know, the grow-up day for me was when I had to admit there was dysfunction in the Horton household. Dysfunction is when something's not functioning properly or correctly, is not completely in order. It's a bit on the dysfunctional side. Everybody's got some of that to deal with. And if you think you don't, whether you're just thinking wrongly, because you do. And you know what? Uh, you know, seeing ourselves the way we really are is the most difficult thing we ever do. And for me, I have blinders on myself. And what I found is I have to go to other people and say, would you tell me what I'm really like? What it's really like to communicate with me? What my attitude's really like? You know, what it's like to hang out with me? Can you show me some things I need to change? Because I can't see them myself. How many know we live life behind glasses, the colored glasses of our own experience? And we often can't see the things that we need. And that's why, you know, you're a really wealthy person if you've got a friend who will love you enough to be honest with you. Didn't say be mean, but I said be honest with you. That's, that's a wealthy thing. And, you know, the people I've appreciated, that's why I love my wife. My Susan, she'll tell me just the way it is. Now, when she first says it, you know, I'm kind of like, did you have to say that that way? But, you know, I go back and I say, I really appreciate that because that helps me. And I appreciate people. Don't you appreciate people that do that? If you don't, learn to appreciate it. Some of us are afraid of the honesty that good relationships can bring because of the foundation that we have. How many understand? So I'm going, I'm going somewhere with this. See, see, God's original plan started going here last week that God's original plan was that he created Adam and then Eve from his body. And he, he, he created her, and then they, they were married in his eyes. Bone of uh, each other's bone, flesh of, uh, Adam said, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, you'll be called woman. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and there'll be one flesh. And God's plan, had Adam and Eve not sinned, was that they, out of their love, they bear children, and their children are a product of their care for each other, and then, and then they raise those children in an atmosphere and environment in the home of unconditional love and self-sacrificial love. Now, that was God's best. Hardly anybody gets that now. Not completely unconditional. Not completely self-sacrificial because all of us are tainted with selfishness. Yes or no? Just trying to paint a picture of what originally God wanted to happen. So he wanted us as human beings and of all of the mammals uh, in creation, 
It takes us the longest to mature because we're so complex and, and, and we can think and we can reason and we can make choices. So, you know, the, the, pro, the maturation process for the human race is so much different than the animal kingdom, for instance, because we're so much more complex and we learn. We learn from that family environment. And God's plan was we learn to love. We learn to relate. We love to learn to communicate. We learn how to care for ourselves and we learn how valuable we are by having fellowship with our parents. And see, when I'm saying that with the crowd we've got here and then those of you watching online, some people are saying, well, boy, I didn't learn to value myself or I wasn't talked to very kindly or I had to learn a lot of things on my own. That's, that's, the reason, that's the reason we have such issues and problems is because we take what happened at home and we think everybody else is that way and how many know they're not? I thought Susan, something's wrong with Susan. We got married first couple of weeks. You know, we're coming home from work. I did it this way. She did whatever that. I said, what's wrong with you? She said, well, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I had the idea everybody lived, everybody's family was like mine. She had the idea, well, everybody's family's like mine. We found out her family wasn't like mine and mine wasn't like hers. And we had to find a happy medium. So how many know if you're gonna have, I could go off into all kinds of tangents, want a good marriage relationship, learn to be adaptable. Learn to let the other person be them. And then if they'll allow you to be you, you just kind of meet in the middle somewhere. How many know you can make it? I figured out 39 years of marriage, you can do it. It's not always easy, right? It's challenging, isn't it? So anyway, um, so even though we have the love of God inside, our mind will default to the training we've had at home. How many just heard what I said? So, you know, so, so I know that we're new creatures in Christ. Old things pass away. All things are become new but the sepsis and the influence from our past is still in our soul, our minds, our emotions, the way we live, the way we think. A lot of our habits come from home life. Yes or no? Ways of doing things are entrenched behavior. Generally, a child's character, psychologists say by age five or so, a character's pretty much developed. That's what that child's gonna be because they've been learning since they opened their eyes and breathed their first breath. So how many know, parents, we've got a lot of responsibility. You say, well, what if I fail? Well, all of us have. Reach out for the grace of God to make up the difference and take up the slack. How many hear me? And I feel the Spirit of God saying this, if you're here and you have, you have had failures and you feel like your children aren't where they need to be, aren't doing what they are, ought to do, quit beating yourself up about it. Pray and trust God to work in them. Yes or no? So when you talk about these things, you gotta talk about all of that because it's, it's all mixed up, right? So there's a book that we have been using. In fact, uh, uh, the first time that we used this at Victory Church was in 1996. We were in the shopping center, and I actually taught it to our leaders in the late fall of 1996. It's called Search for Significance, and it's a book that Billy Graham, when he was, he was alive, said, every Christian ought to go through this book, Search for Significance, because that book, Search for Significance, identifies the false beliefs that we have, and then it gives the antidote uh, uh, biblically 
for the, and the cure for the false beliefs that we're raised up with. And in that book, Search for Significance, and let me say we have a course by that name, and we've got uh, some of our groups, we've got a group by that name, there's workbooks and such that go with that book. And I want to encourage you, if you've never been through Search for Significance, it's worth going through it. I went through it the first time with myself and, like I said, our, our leadership team at the time, and it was really a big challenge to me. And, and I had been in the Lord then, my goodness, 20-something years, and I just didn't realize, I didn't, I didn't realize the changes that I needed to make. Nobody identified it to me. Nobody taught along those lines. They didn't talk about relational things the way that I needed them. And when I read that, I'm going to tell you, it challenged me. Uh, psychically, in my mind, mentally, it challenged me. Emotionally, it challenged me. I'm going to tell you, it rattled me. Because I saw deficiencies in my own life. And, and I saw that I was treating people out of hurt, out of shame, out of need in my own life. And, and God was challenging me through the things I shared. And I was even leading the course and said, man, Lord, I'm leading this thing, but I need this more than they do, you know. So I want to encourage you. If you haven't gone through that course, the book Search for Significance, really good tonight in my notes. In fact, my notes are on version. They're also on our website tonight. You can follow me in this because I need to slow down just a little bit. Uh, there are four false beliefs that arise out of, of being raised in a less than perfect home. And all of us have to deal with these four false beliefs about ourself and about, our, about others and how we relate to them. And they are common through humanity. So search for significance gives the false belief. And then the antidote to it. The answer to it from the scriptures. So real quickly the first one is. And this is the reason. Even though the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Even though we know Jesus said. Love one another even as I have loved you. We come up short. The reason we come up short. Is because our minds have been. And our human person has been so influenced by our surroundings for years and years and years before we meet the Lord and we have entrenched behavior patterns that God wants us to change. How many believe that? So the first false belief they mentioned, which is really, really amazing and true, those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. That's a false belief that a lot of people still are entrenched and stuck in in the way they relate to themselves and relate to others. So again, those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. How many know that's not true? How many know our Father loves us even when we mess up? So in the notes in parenthesis, I've got the antidote for the false belief, which which is I am loved even when I fail. I am forgiven and deeply loved by God. Is that good news? The New Testament word for that is propitiation. You never use that in your vocabulary. And that, that's really a, a word that, that talks about God's anger towards sin, towards humanity, is completely taken care of by the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, these things, 1 John 2, I write unto you that you don't sin. Then he says, if any man does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation. 
King James Version says, for our sins. He is, the, he is the satisfaction of God's anger on behalf of how we've lived for our sins. And not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So those who fail are unworthy of love and deserve to be punished. So, so that's giving a person the silent treatment when they say something that you don't like or they say something about you that you don't appreciate. That's door slamming at home. That's cabinet slamming at home. That's, that's giving somebody the cold shoulder at work. That's treating them with that false belief. Those who fail are unworthy of love. Or you walk some, by somebody at church that should have done something for you. They obviously didn't. You're upset with them. Instead of looking at them, you just turn the other way. Make sure you don't make eye contact when you go. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. See, we do this all the time. Those who fail are unworthy of love, deserve to be punished. So, so the effects in, in each one of these in the notes, I've got the, the way it affects you and then how you treat others if you have this false belief entrenched in how you think. Uh, the way you treat yourself if you feel uh, that you're unworthy of love when you fail and you deserve to be punished because of what you did. And this is a deep-seated underlying thing. You're a down on yourself. So ask yourself, am I down on myself? Am I upset with myself? Am I frustrated with myself? Do I feel demotivated? Why even try to do better? I can't try. I can't do better if I tried. Guilt-ridden constantly. See, those are symptoms that this false belief is at work in a person's life. Those who fail are not unworthy of love. They're not worthy of being punished because the grace of God's been manifested to us through Jesus. Yes or no? And I've told you how many times when I came to the Lord, I'm the person that would call myself names. You sorry dirt bag, you piece of dirt, you piece of trash, you stupid idiot. And I was saying those things and God challenged me so hard. Stop, just stop, stop. Don't say that anymore. And then he challenged me that I'm talking about him when I talk that way because he created me. I am his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus, right? Right? So see, if you're thinking bad about yourself, talking bad about yourself, you know, belly aching about you and what you hadn't done and what you should have done, what you could have, should have, would have, is a dead end street. How many know the grace of God covers that? We've got to let, how many know once, once you come to Jesus, you've got to let the forgiving grace of God work in you? And the first way that happens is you love you. You love the, God loves you. If God loves me, I've got to love me. A lot of people today, they don't love me themselves. No, no, no. They put up with themselves, but they're upset with themselves. You know what? You need to learn that God loved you enough to give his son Jesus, to cleanse your sin, to make you right, to cleanse your past, act, acting towards you as though you would never done wrong. Is that good? So when we fail, we're still loved. We often treat, so we treat ourselves, down on ourselves, we're upset, frustrated, demotivated. Others, there's little grace and space for mistakes or problems. You've been, ever been around somebody, you do one little thing, it's like, what'd you do? What'd you do that? And you just kind of want to say, would you just shut up? <laughs> that's not love, and that's what your flesh wants to do, right? Somebody's just too tight. Little, little grace or space for mistakes or problems or inconsistencies. Rigid in relationship. Have you ever been around a demanding person? Maybe that person's you. Do you know you can be demanding and not even know it? You put pressure. Ask yourself. Ask other people around you. Do I put pressure on you to conform to a certain thing? Now, I've got to watch the time. But when I first got married, I mean, y'all, I'm guilty of all of this. I mean, it's me. 
When Susan and I first got married, I'll never forget, uh, we hadn't been married even two weeks. I came home for lunch on a Saturday, and I opened the front door, and she was in the kitchen. It's 11 o'clock on, don't tell her I told you this. 11 o'clock on Saturday, her hair was a bit disheveled. She had a robe on, and she was in the kitchen, and she was cleaning the pots because she didn't wash them last, the night before after supper. And she had just gotten up, and she was afraid that I would get on her because the kitchen was a mess. Because she hadn't had a, she just slept in late. Well, I think it's cool if she slips, sleeps in late, don't you? Yeah. But she, see, she thought I was a performance-oriented person who had great demands. And, man, it challenged me. Later on in our marriage, you know, it's probably seven or eight years in our marriage, she said, you know, Mitch, you, and she told me I put pressure on her. It, made, it hurt me so bad I wept. I went off by myself and said, God, I can't believe I'm treating people the way I'm treating them. Would you help me? And it took a lot of the grace of God to come into me. And you know, if you have these kind of things, just be honest with yourself. It's amazing what God can do. Yes? All right. Uh, Number two, the second false belief, I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. See, that's a false belief a lot. Man, there's a lot of people caught up in that. I was caught up in that. I must meet certain standards. I got to do certain things to feel good about me. That's, that's a person who is a performance-based person. That's a performance-based personality. And that was me for a lot of years of my life. If you can't relax, if you can't take a break, if you can't take a vacation and feel calm without feeling ill at ease, then that performance issue is a big issue for you. It was for me. I've told many of you these stories. If you've been here any length of time at Victory Church, I mean, I've talked about these things. I I was on uh, the second day of a two-week vacation in maybe 1986. I was actually at Myrtle Beach, and we lived in Oklahoma, and I was on staff at a large church there. We had a couple of kids. It had to be 86. And, uh, and Susan and I are on the beach, and I'm, I'm ill at ease. I can't be comfortable. The sun is shining, the, the you know, the... the uh, you, the waves are splashing, the, the uh, wind is blowing, and we're under an umbrella, I'm reading a book, and it seems like life should be wonderful, and I'm miserable. And I say, why am I so, something's, and I thought, something's really wrong with me. Here's a picture-perfect day. The birds are singing, but I'm unhappy. Why? And I'm thinking about my office in Tulsa. I'm thinking about my desk. I'm thinking about the work that I could be doing. I'm thinking about accomplishing things. You know why? Because I feel bad about me. Because if I'm not doing something, I feel bad. How many know that's a performance-based personality? God had to deliver me from that. And that's, that's when I began to be aware of it. And it took a while for God to really speak to me and deal with me about it. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself, the antidote. I'm completely forgiven, fully pleasing to God. I'm justified. How many know we're saved by grace, through faith, not by our works? Yes or no? So with this one, uh, the way I treat myself, many people like this become workaholics. I was one. I'm a recovering workaholic. How's that? Perfectionism. You know, you got to have everything just right. Every T's got to be crossed. Every I's got to be dotted. Every piece of paper's got to be just, just, just right, etc. And the whole house has to be just, just right. 
You know, you do that physically, you'll do that to people. Yes or no? Workaholic, perfectionism, very black and white, no gray. Things have to be just right. You're up with, set with yourself, ill at ease. See, that's a performance-based personality. How does that person treat others? You gotta, you, they, they've got to be just right. You tend to be judgmental, you know, don't make allowances for others when they make mistakes. Little margin for inconsistencies, a critical nature, always making little jabs. See, those are signs and symptoms that it's a performance-based thing. Boy, y'all look at me like, well, you're you going to be talking about all this for a long time? How many know we all have to deal with this, y'all? Uh, I wrestle with this. Do you wrestle with this in your life? I'm telling you, the Word of God can make a difference. How many hear me? And once you find out that Jesus did the work so we can be free. So even when I mess up, he still loves me. Even when others mess up, it's okay. Even when I'm not busy and I'm resting, the Father still loves me because my value of myself is not based on what I do, it's based on what he did. Yes or no? Father, I ask in Jesus' name, give us a revelation of what I'm talking about here. I feel like I need to hang out here a while, y'all. I ask you to minister to us. I pray for me and all of us. We've got we've to meet certain standards to feel good about ourselves. Help us to get over the hump with that. Father, Father those of us who've, who, who feel like when we fail, we're not worthy even to be loved or cared for by others and we deserve to be punished. I ask you, work us out of that in the name of Jesus. How many would ask God to do that for you? Father, while I'm preaching and teaching and talking tonight, I ask you to begin a process in the name of Jesus. And Lord, do it in me. You've been doing this in me for years, but you still have more you want to do. Sometimes it's layers. And Father, do it in all of us. The third, the third false concept we have about life often because we live in a fallen world and we come from unwhole families is I must ex- be accepted by others to feel good about myself. There's another one right there. And that one honestly hit me between the eyes. And uh, because of the way I was raised, I felt like, uh, you know, nobody liked me. Nobody cared about me. I've got a lot of reasons. I may, tell, I, don't, I may have to take next time and go into more detail with that and how I overcame that. But I had to deal with that in a big way in my own life. And this is a person that has a rejection-based personality they always think other people don't like them for various reasons and how many know that's absolutely not true your mind can convince you that these things I'm talking about are more real than the bible them are more real than what God says about you how many hear what I'm saying I must be accepted by others to feel good about myself the antidote to that is I am totally loved and accepted by God in fact Ephesians 1 Four or five says we are accepted in the beloved. Everybody say it out loud. Now I want you to say this. I want you to, I want you to say even though others reject me, God always accepts me. Now if this is the false belief that you have to deal with, I must be accepted by others to feel good. Everybody's got to love me or I'm not feeling right about myself. If that's, how do you treat yourself if that's something you're dealing with? This is a big issue. When somebody else critiques you or talks to you about something that might be good for you to work on in your life, you immediately get angry and reject what they say and become rigid and stop listening. 
How many know that's a problem? How many know if we're going to grow, we got to be open to hear other people? How many hear me? Defensiveness, anger when critiqued. This is a person that won't, won't voice their opinion when they're in a group of people. Why? Because they're afraid they might say something that somebody else doesn't agree with or doesn't like. And for this personality, everybody's got to agree with you. Everybody's got to like it. You know what? We need to get over that. Because it's impossible to be a person that every single person in the world likes. They criticize Jesus. I think he was probably the most loving person ever. Would you agree? And a lot of people didn't like him. So you know what? Just because somebody disagrees with you doesn't mean that you're not loved, that you're not cared for. It just means they don't agree with you. So how do you treat yourself if you're a person that has to be accepted by others to feel good about yourself? Well, you're two-faced. You're like that little lizard, the chameleon. He's brown on a brown leaf, green on a green leaf, blue on a blue leaf, yellow on a yellow leaf. Just whatever the other person is, that's what you are. So that's a person that you can't trust because they talk out of both sides of their mouth. Is that true? How many know you can't trust somebody that says one thing to one person, another thing to another person? And how many know it's really challenging in life if you're talking to somebody and you got to make sure that everything you're saying meets their agreement, their approval? How many of that will stymie you and hinder you in life? Yes or no? I promise it does. I've had to deal with those things personally in my own life. In fact, uh, when I came to the Lord, my goodness, I didn't realize how much what other people thought about me mattered to me. God had to, God had to take me through a series of events. When we come back next time, I'll talk to you in detail about how God dealt with all of these things in me. And I'm not sitting here like I'm the ultimate perfection now and I never have to deal with these things. Anything you've ever dealt with always comes up sometimes. And we constantly have to deal with ourselves and remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Yes or no? Well, that false belief needs to be conquered. I must be accepted by others to be feel good about myself. How many know if I'm accepted by the Lord, if I'm accepted by Jesus, if I'm loved by him, if I'm forgiven by him, how many know people may like me, people may lump me, but I'm gonna be okay? Yes or no? I'm gonna come back to that one. The fourth one is I am what I am I cannot change, I'm hopeless. How many know that's a lie? Have you ever met somebody that is resigned? Well, I can't ever change. I don't know what I'm gonna do. Shut up. You can change. Don't buy the lie. Well, that's a person that's given up and that's a false belief that many people have. I've talked to people that way. Regardless of what you say, they've gotta come back. You can encourage them, them as much as they want to, but they have lost hope that God could do anything with them because they are absolutely hopeless and can't change. Well, the antidote to that is, you know what? I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How many know that? A person that has this false belief system in their life, the way they think about themselves, they're defeated, they're constantly struggling, they have little drive or ambition to do anything in life because they've thrown up their hands. Why does it matter? Nothing's ever gonna change. I'm always gonna be the same. If that's you, that's a lie and it needs to be resisted. 
That's a person that's constantly pessimistic instead of optimistic. That's a person also that can easily yield to self-pity. When I was a young man, I didn't realize how much self-pity drove my life. But it was part of me because I as a person felt like I was hopeless. And, uh, and until Jesus came and challenged me and then changed me when I was 17, that was me. I felt like I could never change. I'm the back, black sheep of my Family, how many know God can take nothing and make something out of it? Is that true? So again, if you're dealing with this, I am what I am, I can't change, I'm hopeless. The way you deal with others is that creates a person who is unreliable. They may or may not show up if they have responsibilities. A person that is resigned, they don't, aren't trying to change anything, they're not looking to be different. It's a person that's nonchalant. You know, they just have a have I don't care attitude because they're at it because they have no basis for hope that things can be different. It's a, it creates a person that's critical, critical of themselves, and then judgmental towards others. How many know the way I treat me is the way I treat you? If I don't treat me with the love that God has for me, if I don't respect me, then I won't respect you. Yes or no? Is that true? So what God, what Jesus does when he comes to, into our life, he makes us a new creature. He makes us like himself. He raises us up together and makes us sit together in heavenly places in him. Is that good news? He makes us like him. And he gives us an ability to overcome all of these false, false beliefs. We're no longer unworthy of love. We no longer deserve to be punished because he has completely forgiven us and fully accepted who we are. Can you believe that about yourself? Then you know what? You can change that false belief. He has, he has met the standard of life for us and we would put our faith in Jesus that we're new creatures in Christ, that we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to good works, whether we're busy one day or whether we're taking a break. Our worth and value of ourselves, not based on what we do, it's based on what he did, right? So if we accept who Jesus, what Jesus has done for us, then we're, when we're around people that we don't think like us or act in ways that they don't accept who we are or they disagree with us, we can be absolutely okay. Now, when I come back next time, I want to talk about how you become okay. This is a big process. And for me, I had to learn, learn to stand in a room of people who didn't like what I said, didn't agree with who I was, and still smile and love them even though they didn't accept me. How many know that's a challenge? Yes? How many know it's a huge challenge if you feel like you've got to be constantly busy? How many know that's a big challenge to overcome? To let the grace of God carry your life. How many know that is a big deal? How many know when, you, when constantly all of your life, somebody's talked about your failures, talked about what you haven't done, always showing you how you never measure up? How many know that's a lot to overcome? But it's not impossible. It just takes practice. How many hear me? Oh, my goodness. And then how many know if you feel like life is impossible, you can never change? How many know it's a process to get over that kind of thinking? How many have been challenged by what I said tonight? 